Feeling the energy. Feeling the energy. Woo! Before we dive into the text this morning, I think it would be good and important for us to congratulate uh, two, two graduates that we have in the life of the church. Yep, we have uh, Hannah Lape and also Elijah Stoop. So want uh, them to just know that, uh, yeah. We know your parents are proud. Uh, also know that your church is proud of you as well. And of course, all glory be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. And uh, in the appropriate times this summer, uh, we will be for sure bringing them forward and, and giving them a prayer of blessing slash sending, uh, as we know they're heading on to new things. So our prayers will be with them. So be aware of that. So today is our last day in Matthew, chapter 13. <laughs> Everyone's like, wait, what? Yeah, it's been two years, and we're still in chapter 13. We're going to take a little break. We're going to dive into the book of James this summer. I think it's a fitting uh, book of the, of the Bible. Obviously, all of them are. But just given the issues that we've faced over the last couple of years in the life of the church, in the world, issues related to uh, our trials, difficulties, the words that we say, conflict, it just seemed like a fitting book to maybe dive into and see what the Lord would say to us about what the Christian response is, what the gospel promotes in us. So next week, we will be starting James chapter 1, a little bit of a Matthew breather before we head into chapter 14 this fall. Sound great? I knew you were excited about it. So today, we continue in Matthew. We leave behind the parables, transitioning to a new section in the scriptures. And it's in this section of Matthew that we're going to see, which we've already seen a little bit already, a little bit of heightened conflict. There's going to be opposition. Jesus is doing his thing. He's, he's teaching. He's preaching. He's healing. And more and more, we're going to see this conflict ensue, this tension arise between the religious leaders, even the people, and Christ and his teaching. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, I guess in some ways we will remind you of that in the fall. Uh, but uh, off and on in this series, we've been asking this simple question, and I want to put it forward to you this morning as well before we read the passage. Who is Jesus, and how do we respond to him? That's really been the dominant thing that Matthew has bringing, uh, been bringing to us as we've walked through this book together. This book is about Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus, who he is, what he uh, is, has done, and what he is teaching us in terms of what he's revealing about the Father and the truth. And so this is about Jesus again today, this passage. You're wondering, what's the sermon about? It's about Jesus, dead center bullseye, the focus today. And of course, we're going to see response. And so I put that forward to you this morning as we read the passage. Who do you understand Jesus to be? Who do you understand him to be? And how have you, at this point in your life, 
How have you responded to who he is in your understanding of that question? This question is of unparalleled significance and importance. That's what Matthew has been putting forward for us and what we will focus on today. Matthew chapter 13, 53 through 58. Follow along with me. Who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? Verse 53 says this. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would apply the truths of this word to the hearts of the men and women that are here. Show us who Jesus really is, and would awaken within us an appropriate response. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When someone returns home, no matter how long or what are the circumstances are, why they were not home, when they return home, there comes with that some sort of expectation of a, 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 a joyful reception, right? When, when soldiers return home from war, right? You may have seen those historic photos of World War II and other wars where the, the soldiers return home on the boat and there's all these soldiers uh, waving flags, celebrating, and of course, on the, on the shore are all the women and children smiling, weeping, excited that the soldiers had come home. What about when prisoners uh, return home from jail, especially those who were found to be not guilty, who were sent there unjustly? Uh, One of my favorite movies of the last couple years was a movie called Just Mercy. And it was the story of Walter McMillan, who was unfairly uh, uh, convicted and sentenced of a crime that he did not commit in this whole uh, battle that goes on in the movie to get justice. And then you, uh, the anticipation of a, a, a verdict that would show that he was indeed not guilty and released and the, and the emotions of what took place when Walter McMillan finally came home. You think of a father who goes away on a business trip and comes home to his children in the expectation of the family that he would be received. And then, of course, whenever a mother leaves for any reason and goes anywhere, (laughs) when she returns home, it's like the waving of flags and the jubilee of the family. She's back! All right? Can somebody say amen to that? 
right? I'll never forget when I was uh, early on in the dad days. We're in teenage mode. I'm like begging my kids to pay attention to me now. It's like, you know, when they were young, it was like 15 minutes. You're like, we're all going to die when mom's gone. We're all going to die. Where is she? Some of you dads know exactly what that's about right now. You know, like, yeah, moms are amazing. Amen. It's it's not Mother's Day, I get it, but moms are amazing. When they're gone, the wheels fall off. And when they return, it is a grand reception. Anyway, I've said enough. Jesus returns home today. Jesus comes home. He's been teaching an itinerant ministry. He's been all around the region of Galilee. And now he's come home. And you would expect a grand reception. I mean, think about all that Jesus has done. I'm sure the report about Christ has made it back to his hometown. This guy teaches with authority. This guy heals the paralyzed. This guy might be the one who we expect to come. You might expect a grand homecoming. But we actually see something quite different. Verse 54 and 56, they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? He goes in 56, where then did this man get all these things? They begin to question the source of his teaching, his authority, and his mighty deeds. They begin to question him. Astonished by what they're seeing. Based on their assumptions of what they think they know about Jesus, they question him. Where did this man get this wisdom? Where did this man get all these things? They want to understand, or at least they question the source. Where's all this coming from? I think that's an important thing to consider, right? When we try to understand who somebody is. To know somebody is to ask those kinds of questions. Like, where do you come from? Right? This week I had the opportunity to spend some time with our partners in Kentucky. We spent some time with Stephen Crenshaw, one of the employees of 20 Schemes. He went on to tell about where he was from. Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Two words, horses, bourbon. That's Kentucky. Okay, now some of the real Baptists are like, what do you say? <laughs> bourbon. Horses and bourbon, Kentucky. It defines them. It's, it's, their, it's their culture. It's their place. So to know something about Stephen Crenshaw, and when he says, hey, I'm from Kentucky, all those kind oh, do you have a horse? You start to make assumptions about people, right? I was also traveling with Bernie Elliott, one of the elders at Missio. He was sharing about some of his roots with Syracuse and with Pittsburgh and all of that. And there are certain assumptions that are made based on getting to know somebody, based on that is requiring you to ask where they come from. But you understand there's more to the story about where, uh, who somebody is. But of course, who they are is defined by where they come from. And we began to share stories of the details of what took place in our lives. And there was more below the surface 
than just a simple statement like, I'm from Shepherdsville, Kentucky. I'm from Syracuse, New York, the home of snow salt potatoes. What else? You help me. Is that it? What's that? That's it. You know, I was going to say something to them. Well, how's it feel? Like, we're obviously the epicenter of college basketball, but he's from Kentucky. So I can't really say that, right? It didn't really work. But you get to know somebody based on where they've come from. So in order to know who Jesus is, guess what we need to know? We need to know where he comes from, don't we? In order to know who Jesus is, it's an important thing to consider. Where does Jesus come from? Well, they know. They know where he comes from. He grew up right here in this boring, ordinary uh, peasant village up in northern Israel in the region of Galilee. They know Jesus. They ask the questions, right? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not... Uh, is his mother not called Mary? And are his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? The answer to every one of those questions is yes. They know Jesus. They know the kind of ordinary man that he is. They know his hometown. They know his upbringing. He lived there for probably 30 years. He's the son of a carpenter. He's nothing special. We know where he came from. We know who he is. Who does he think he is to say these things? He's just one of us. And some of you may be thinking about Jesus in that regard. He's just one of us. There's nothing unique and extraordinary about the nature of Jesus Christ. He's a man who lived and he died. He's just like one of us. If you're here today, if you have ears, hear what the scriptures say about the true identity, the true origin, the true hometown of Jesus. We know that Nazareth, and hearing him teach, takes offense of him. How do they respond to him based on their preconceived assumptions and notions about his identity? The text tells us they took offense at him. Who he was, what he was doing, offended them. They stumbled over him, and they fell. It's a stumbling block, who he was and what he was teaching. They did not honor him, who he was and what he taught. Jesus says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They did not honor Jesus in all that he was and all that he said to them. Nazareth stumbled over Jesus. What he was saying and what he was doing was offensive to them. And you say, well, that's kind of extreme, right? What's the big deal? You don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. Does it have to be offensive? Can't you live in some sort of neutrality in relationship to Jesus Christ? The answer is absolutely not. Because if you're listening to the teaching of Jesus, if you're listening to the claims that he's making, you understand that the kinds of claims that Jesus makes in the world are claims that are staked on us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Right? Jesus has been teaching about the nature of the kingdom. Jesus has been making claims about himself. If you look to Luke's gospel in this particular story, you'll see that Jesus reads from the scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61. He talks about the spirit-anointed one who would come and proclaim uh, peace to the captives. He reads that scroll in Luke's account, and he closes it up. He puts it down. He looks at everybody in the room, and he said, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says to them, that's me. I'm the spirit-anointed one sent to preach and proclaim peace to the captives, to set people free. I am that one. It's me. And in doing so, he's claiming to be someone, but he's also staking a claim on their lives, their, their eternities, their destinies, their purpose for existence. He's staking a claim and saying, you cannot live in neutrality to my identity. You must respond. You must repent. You must turn to me. The content of Christ's teaching is offensive if it is not coupled with a clear and accurate understanding of who he is. We've got to understand who he is. He makes claims. He stakes claims. That's what he's doing. He's saying, listen to me. Learn from me. Submit to me. Be saved by me. Understand today that Christ claims to be all of that and more, which we will talk about. And he's staking a claim on your life, your heart, your purpose, Everything about you, your decisions, your relationships. He's saying, I am Lord. Submit to me. Trust me. And yet it's within our heart, our propensity to say, no. I take offense at you. The claims you make will not honor you. And in the end, we see that ultimately, verse 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of what? Their unbelief. At the end of the day, you roll all this up, and it's simply a revelation that apart from a regenerative work of the living God in our hearts, our response will be to reject him and to not believe him and his teaching. We will go on thinking that he's just a peasant from Galilee and Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. We will not really understand the totality of his character and his eternal nature. We will not understand that, and we will live in a way that rejects and disbelieves who he is. That's the sad tragedy of the text. Disbelief. John 1, he came to his own. What? His own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. That's what we see taking place here. But what if Nazareth doesn't have the full picture? What if they're asking not enough questions? What if they're not investigating enough? What if they need to know more? 
What if they're missing something important that changes the game on their understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ? What if their assumptions are blind to the fact and the fuller reality of Christ's true origin and identity? And what if you do the same as well here today? What if there's more to know, to understand, to be convicted concerning, and to trust in? What if there's more? Who is Jesus really? Do you know? Who is Jesus really? Having an answer must include Where does he come from? Where did this man get these things? Having an accurate answer must deal with the question of his origin, the question of where he comes from. And I'm here to tell you today that this is not the only passage to consider the identity of Jesus. Actually, not even in the book of Matthew. And so we think about Matthew's argument, his account of the identity and the works of Jesus, We just turn back to what he's already said, what we've already learned about Jesus, that while we affirm and we must affirm that Jesus is the son of Joseph, we must affirm that. While we affirm that Jesus is the son of Joseph, we must understand that ultimately and more profoundly that Jesus is the son of God. Do you know that today? Do you believe that? Matthew 1, that whole birth account, if you remember what what Matthew says about Jesus, he doesn't just say he came from Joseph. Actually, he says something different, that he came from the Holy Spirit on two occasions. Where does Christ come from? He comes from... From the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We understand in the Apostles' Creed, right? He was conceived of the what? Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. If you want to be real simple about it, that while he is indeed the son of Joseph, he is the carpenter's son, in a more profound way, he is the son of God. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. And while we would affirm that Jesus has no impressive theological training to add to his earthly credibility, which Nazareth understood, who is this guy? He's a carpenter's son. We must understand that he is the one authorized and sent by the Father to reveal. God's nature and will. What does that mean? Not only is Jesus the Son of God, he's the prophet of God. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the prophet of God. Where does this man get these things? From God. That's the simple answer. They don't see it. But he who has ears, let him hear this morning. Jesus comes from God. That's what makes his teaching what it is. He comes from God. Jesus and his teaching come from God. John 1 tells us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the father's side. What has made him known? That's Jesus. That's who he is. That is the source of his teaching. Comes from God. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, this is about the nature of Jesus. What they saw, grow, who they saw grow up in Nazareth was the image of the invisible God. He came from God. Hebrews 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by what? The prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by the prophet, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Do you understand who Jesus is? Are you only looking on the externals, the historical accounts, or do you see the revealed uh, word of God tell you the deeper reality of who he is and where he comes from? He does come from Nazareth. We hold tight to that understanding of Jesus. He was he came to us, he lived amongst us, he grew up in that place, but ultimately and more profoundly, Jesus' origin is in God. He comes from God. I want you to see that today. That's where he comes from. And herein lies the wonderful truth of the gospel this morning. In the midst of our skepticism, in the midst of our unbelief, and our, and our distaste, and maybe even our weaknesses this morning. Or maybe we're so wrapped up in the do's and don'ts of religion that the, the reality of the gospel has grown so stale for us. May you be refreshed this morning by being reminded of the great truth of the gospel, of what is being, being revealed in an implicit way in this passage. That the man Jesus came from God. His teaching comes from God as the son and the prophet of God, right? But understand this, that the, the narrative of the gospel is that the one who came from God, who, who has a hometown known as heaven, entered into human history, came to us to bring us back home. He left his home, came to our home, that he might bring us home, our true home. That's the gospel message. That's what the people of Nazareth don't see, don't understand. And maybe that's you today. You've made certain assumptions about Jesus, and you've responded according to those assumptions, and maybe you've never heard where he comes from, the totality of his identity, and maybe you've never understood that the real heartbeat of the gospel is the simple truth that he left heaven, he came to earth, that he might bring us back to where we truly belong in his kingdom to our true home. This is not our true home. God is. Amen? Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You see both and there? Born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive the adoption as sons. Hear the gospel in that. That Jesus was sent from the Father. 
Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To set us free. To redeem us from the curse of the law. That's what he did. And redemption was accomplished in and through this brutal, bloody cross. The ultimate symbol of humanity's rejection of God. We reject you. Crucify him. Crucify him was the anthem. Sinful humanity's response to hearing the truth of Christ and seeing his mighty works was to say, crucify him, crucify him. We reject you. We do not believe you. Matter of fact, we would be more than willing to believe and embrace anything else but you. And yet, in the midst of all of that rejection, all of that unbelief, Jesus set us free from the very thing that killed him, our unbelief. He redeemed us. See, that's where God's at work. In the most gruesome, horrific uh, moments in history, God was at work. I want you to hear that. God was at work in and through the unbelief, if you will, using it for his glory, bringing about his purposes so that he could secure for us all the blessings of the new covenant, which give us a new heart to trust him. It was the very cross of, of Jesus that secured those blessings for us. He died for unbelief, amen? And some of you this morning needed to hear that because you're saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I'm struggling. It's hard. It's difficult. I believe, but help my unbelief. It is the cross of Jesus, the work of Christ, that is the remedy for our unbelief. Even our unbelief is no match for the glory of God displayed in the work of Jesus on the cross. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Praise be to him. The son came from his heavenly home to this world and died to redeem us from our unbelieving heart. Knowing where Christ comes from, right? It transforms our response to his teaching. Knowing where Christ comes from transforms our response to his teaching. You got to know where he came from. And it's so much more than Nazareth. It's from God, from heaven. And as we hear that, and as the Spirit of God works on your heart, the blessings of the new covenant come to you. And you see him for who he really is. And the response is simply trust. Trust. Faith. The response the scriptures call us to is to trust in Christ and his teaching. Let us not ask questions in skepticism based on our assumptions of who we think he is. Let us not dishonor the prophet that God has sent. Let us not doubt Jesus for one second. Let us trust him. Do you trust Jesus? Do you see who he is, where he came from? Trust him. Maybe for the first time today, because your eyes are open to see his nature in a new way. That who he is and what he says is God speaking directly to you. Revealing his nature and his will. 
Maybe you've, you've uh, pushed away and, and, and acted stubbornly and uninterested to the, to the prophetic voice of God in your life, to the preaching of the word. And maybe today, just the spirit of God's at work on your heart and he's drawing you as the scripture says that he does. He draws us to himself. The fruit of that drawing will be trust. It's faith. And faith involves at least three things. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. When I say uh, uh, have faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus, I'm saying have a knowledge of him, which we've talked about today. Agree with it. Assent to it. But it does not stop there. It must lead to trust. It must become personal, not just conceptual. Listen to what John Murray says. He says, faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. A transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources and reliance upon Christ for salvation. It is a receiving and resting upon Him. It is here that the most characteristic act of faith appears. It is engagement of person to person. Faith is trust in a person, the person of Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the lost. It is entrustment of ourselves to Him. It is not simply believing Him, it is believing in Him and on Him. Very important. Why such an emphasis on personal trust? A, a, a transference of all that we are to him. Because I think in many ways we complicate this. Listen, faith, salvation, it is very deep and profound. We cannot think about it, study it enough, converse about it as we grow in our knowledge. It's inexhaustible. But understand this, that faith in Jesus is also very simple. How do you relate to Jesus, person to person? Do you trust him? Do you know him, who he is? Do you believe that he's true? And all that he teaches is that as well. And is it person to person? Is it relationship? That's the essence of biblical faith, person to person. Do you trust Jesus, the person of Jesus, who you are leaning into, relying upon, resting in, finding refuge from this world? Do you, the totality of your identity being purpose and existence, is it leaning into? That's faith. Who he is, what he teaches, what he has accomplished. Let me confess to you that there are moments and seasons in my life that I, I study and I think and I read and I preach and I get lost in, in my own theologizing. And please, I'm not against theology, okay? We're for theology. But I get lost in my own brain. And for me, my relating to Jesus becomes knowing and assenting. Knowing and assenting. And easily it gets lost in translation that the most profound thing about the gospel is that I have a relationship with Jesus built on knowledge and trust. That I can run to him. I can lean on him. I can trust 
in what he's doing. I can believe him and expect good things from him. Is that you today? Or has, you, has it become so religious and stale and blah? It's my hope today that in the simplicity of this, knowing who he is, trusting in his person, that the Spirit of God would reawaken in you a joy and freshness to reinvigorate you and to say, you know what, I've had enough of being enamored with the things and the pleasures of the world in which we live, and I just need Jesus. I just need his word. I need to sing songs of praise. I need to be with his people. I just need Jesus. The simplicity of that is so wonderful, isn't it? It's so wonderful. And that is the gift to receive adoption as sons. Men and women, we receive that status, that relational status of being in his family. Have you forgotten that you've been redeemed into a family that's built on trust in the Son of God, our older brother? What an awesome thing to think about. What about the simple call and promise that Jesus gives in John 15? If you want to talk about our hometown. Because I believe that when you trust Christ, you come home. You come to your true home. When you trust Christ, you come home to Jesus. Right? And what does he say to his disciples in John 15? Abide in me, and I in you. Profoundly deep, wonderfully simple. The call and promise of the gospel is this. Abide in me, and I in you. And isn't that what uh, Augustine meant when he said, knowing our origin, where we came from, You've made yourself, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Many times for me, and I would assume for many of you, not, I don't want to assume that's true of everybody, especially those raising young kids, home is a place of rest, right? It, home at its best becomes a place of rest for us, doesn't it? And I think that when we trust in Jesus, we understand who he is, his identity. We run into his arms. We hear the call and invitation, abide in me, and the promise that he would abide in us. We trust in him, that we actually find our souls rest in him, don't we? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He's our home. So my, my encouragement to you today is, is to come home to Jesus. Understand that you were made by God for God. Genesis 1 and 2. Again, I don't think we think enough about origin to understand our identity and the purpose of our existence. We're always thinking about the here and the now, but it would be helpful for us to think about what the Bible says about our true origin, where we came from. We were made by God for God to live in covenant fellowship with God. That's our true home. 
And we have lived this earthly life as if this place, these values, these false promises that are laid out for us, we lean into and live into this earthly existence as our true home. And in many ways, the call of the gospel says, come home. Come to your soul's true place of rest. Come to Jesus in faith. And here's the wonderful hope that we have. That not only as we trust do we find our home in Christ, as we trust in our true home, we live in the hope and expectation that he will bring us to our eternal home. Right? What did Jesus say to the disciples in John 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I go and prepare a place for you. It's always been God's heart and design that we live with him in our eternal heavenly home. We think about all the people who we have lost over the last year or so and think about the, the, the depth of sorrow that we experience knowing that we would not see them and enjoy them in this earthly life. But oh, the wonderful hope of the gospel that we have that they are indeed living in their home in Christ in the heavenly place. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's the hope laid out for us. As we trust, we come home in Christ. And as we trust, we anticipate our heavenly eternal home. That this place is temporary. It's fading. The suffering and trials of this life, they are temporary. And Christ has promised. In a little while, you won't see me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms there. I'm the way. I'm the way. Knowing where Christ comes from transforms our response to him and his teaching. Trust Jesus today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word today, your word of Christ, that reveals to us who he really is. He's your son. He's your prophet. He and his teaching both come from you. All praise and glory to you, for you sent him into the world to save us and to redeem us, to set us free from sin, to bring us home. I pray for every person here, regardless of where they are in relationship to Jesus, that you would draw them by your spirit. They would know Jesus. They would have a conviction about Jesus. And that they would trust in him, person to person. Do what only you can do. In Christ's name, amen.